for those of you that weren't with us last week, we, uh, we talked about prayer a lot last week. We talked about really diving into kind of situations in life, sin, struggles, uh, different things that we face in life that, that sometimes we can kind of diminish, right? Like we can kind of have a, have a struggle or a sin in life and just kind of minimize it and think like, you know, well, it's okay. It's not that big of a deal. And, and last week we kind of talked about the fact that so many times in our Christian walk, having that mentality and that mindset can totally take us in the opposite direction that we are called to walk in with Christ, right? Like, not only can it take us in the opposite direction, but as we do that and as we adopt that mentality of refusing to confront those issues and those sins in our lives, what we actually do and what we're going to talk about tonight is we can actually desensitize ourselves to sin and struggles in life and actually just pile on top of one another. So um, tonight we're going to be looking at one of my personal favorite passages in the Bible, and, and it's a passage, passage that I have actually preached on before. Um, most of you, I don't know, were probably not here, but it was on a uh, Sunday morning about a year ago when I preached, um, and it's on the prodigal, uh, prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son. So if you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and open them up with me to Luke chapter 15. We're going to be in verses 11 through 32. If you don't have your Bibles, there are some under your chair. Um, if you don't want to grab a Bible, don't feel like you need to. Uh, the scripture is not on your outline, and it's not going to be on the overhead, but you can just listen because you all have ears, right? So <laughs> don't but as you turn there, I kind of want to give you a little information on this. Um, this, is a, this is, as I said, one of my favorite stories in the Bible, one of my favorite parables in the Bible. It's something that I've preached on before, and before you go thinking, well, you're, you're going to preach on the same thing, and it's only been a year? Like, how? Well, you're so lazy. Like, no. Okay, so the powerful thing about the Word of God is so many times we can go back and we can read the same portion of Scripture. I can sit in my office— on a Monday, read a, a, a portion of passage, get something out of it, and God can speak through his word to me, and, and there are so many things that I can apply, and then I can go back, and I can read that same portion of scripture the, the very next Monday, seven days later, and I can be in such a different place in life, right? Like, in seven days, that doesn't seem like a lot of time, but in seven days, a lot can happen. Like, our lives can be completely turned upside down, whether it's from decisions that we make, whether it's decisions that other people make that affect us, like, we can be in such a different place in life that we can read that same portion of, of Scripture seven days later and, it, and completely get something different out of it. So it's one of the powerful things about the Word of God. But this particular parable, in most Bibles, there's a little title above it. I know the ones that you guys have under your chairs. I'm not sure if there is or not. But in most Bibles, there's like a little header that kind of describes or, or titles the, the story or the passage that we're going to be looking at. And as I said, this, is, this one is entitled The Parable of the Prodigal Son. And, and in my studies and, in, and reading this portion of scripture, I have concluded personally that this is like one of the most incorrectly titled portions of scripture. Like I think a more appropriate title for this scripture would be The par Parable of the Prodigal Sons being more than one, because as we're going to see tonight in reading the story, there are actually two sons in the story that Jesus kind of uses to, to play against one another. And I know many of us that have heard the story or read the story before, we, we kind of latch on to the prodigal son, like the lost son, right? Like that's the character. But again, there are two sons in this story. And, and my prayer for us tonight is if you grab your outline, you'll see the, the title of my message tonight is, Who Am I? And and my prayer tonight is that we would ask ourselves those questions, that we would ask ourselves, who am I in this story? Like, 
Who am I in this story? Who do I connect with? And it's a question that I want us to ask ourselves because whether you like it or not, whether you came in here expecting it or not, whether you showed up tonight and ready for it or not, you are in this story. You are in this story whether you like it or not. And my hope is that God would use this portion of Scripture to, to grab you like he did me and that, that you would be open to what God has for us tonight because if we can come to understand and if you can come to understand what Jesus is saying in this parable, I truly believe that it'll absolutely change everything about your life. And I know that because it changed everything about my life. You know, so many times I feel like in church or in small groups such as this, we can come and we can read these stories or these events that took place in, in the Bible and we can kind of think things like, well, that's a cool story. Like, that's a cool thing that happened. Like, you know, God parted the Red Sea. Like, that's cool. That'd be cool to see. Or, you know, Jonah got swallowed by a well. Like, that seems cool to see. Or, you know, we, we read about these stories or, you know, David and Goliath, like, that's cool. Like this small 17-year-old boy beat this 100-foot man. He wasn't 100 feet, but you get what I'm saying. Like we can read these stories and we can think like, wow, those are cool, but how, how do they apply to us? And, and how does this apply to my life? And, and what does this have to do with me? And the fact is that you can actually find yourself in every single story in the Bible. But as Christians, as followers of Christ, we have to do something. Like that takes action on our part. Like we have to open ourselves up to what God might be trying to tell us through his word. Like, you and I can come here week after week. We can come here on Sundays. We can come to the small group. We can actually go to any church across the world every single Sunday. And if we close ourselves off to what God might be wanting to say to us, we're never going to get anything out of his word. We're never going to see any impact. Nothing in our lives are ever going to change because we're not going to be anticipating it. So, I want you to do me a favor tonight, and I want you to be open to what God might want to be telling you tonight. Have an open mind. Expect God to speak through his word to you. Expect God to move in your life tonight, and I believe you, and I believe that he absolutely will. So here we go, Luke 15, 11 through 32. So I'm just going to go ahead and read this start to finish. It says, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons, not one, but how many? Two sons. That's right. Good job, guys. You guys are good at math. Two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. In some translations, it might say inheritance. So, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had. He set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that, war, in, in that whole country. And he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and I will go back to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him in the distance and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw, him, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. 
The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fat calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field when he came near the house he heard music and dancing, so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come home, he replied, and your father has killed a fattened calf because he, has, because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry. Let me read that again. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look. All of these years I have been slaving for you, and I have never disobeyed your orders once. Yet you never even gave me a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fat calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost but now he is found. Okay, so that's a big portion of scripture, right? Basically what we have here is we have a story that Jesus is telling his audience during this time, and it's a story of two acts, and act one, act two, kind of like a play, get it? Get it? Yeah, okay, there we go, all right. So, and in the first act, Jesus, he introduces his audience to the character of the younger son, right? Like he starts it off with this, this, this crazy stuff that's going on between the younger son and his dad. Basically, what he has is he's telling the story of this younger son who comes up to his dad, and he says to his dad, Father, give me my share of the property. In other translations, as I said, it might say, Father, give me my share of the inheritance. Now, what we need to first understand here is that during this time in Jewish culture, a father would leave an inheritance to his sons, okay? So usually what would happen is he would leave a double portion to the oldest son, and equal portions to the younger son. So in the case of two sons like we have in this story, the oldest son would receive two-thirds of their family's life savings, right? So this isn't a small amount of money that we're talking about here. And the younger son, this first son that we're looking at, would receive an equal portion. There's only two sons, so he would get one-third of his um, family's life savings. Now, I want to ask you a question. When, when does somebody typically receive an inheritance, right? Like, when somebody dies. So, when somebody dies, if they've left you some sort of inheritance, which was common back in these days, it's probably not so common anymore, but um, it was when somebody dies. So, basically, what we have here is we have Jesus who is painting this picture of this younger son who is basically going up to his dad and in a nicer way, he's, he's basically telling his dad, Dad, I wish you were dead. Right? Like, if we look at it just from the basic standpoint of the fact that an inheritance is usually inherited once the person leaving the inheritance dies, that's basically what this younger son is saying to his dad. He's basically saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. Now, Throughout tonight, we're asking ourselves, like, who am I in the story? How can I relate to the story? And almost instantly, for some of us in this room, we can instantly relate to this story because some of you sitting in this room 
have been on the receiving end of those words for somebody, from somebody, where tensions got so high where either a significant other, a, a girlfriend, a boyfriend, husband, wife, fiance, uh, a brother, a sister, a parent, whatever, a friend maybe even, where you have actually heard, and tensions got so high that you actually heard them say the words, I wish you were dead. Or maybe, for some of you sitting tonight, maybe, if you're being honest with yourselves, maybe you have been the, wor- the one to say those words to somebody else. Maybe you have been the, wor- the one to think that towards somebody else. Where, where maybe somebody did something so terrible to you that you actually thought, like, man, it would be better if they were never born or if I never crossed paths with them. But either way, for some of us here tonight, the story becomes instantly relatable. We have this crazy start to a story, right, where Jesus is telling his audience during this time about this son who's basically telling his dad that he wishes he was dead. But as crazy as that is, that's not the craziest part of the story. The craziest part of the story is what happens in the next verse. The craziest part is in the next verse where the father complies. Like, we have this son coming up to his dad and saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. Give me my share of the inheritance. Give me what's coming to me, which is nuts. And then we have a father who says, Okay, here you go. Bye. Like, I don't know about you, but as I'm reading this story and trying to put myself in the shoes of this younger son and thinking about, okay, if I were this guy and I went to one of my parents, um and said, you know what, mom or, or dad, uh, they wouldn't leave me inheritance to begin with, but it, let's say they would, okay? So just for, just for last, let's say they would, and I said, hey, you know what? Give me my share of the inheritance. Give me what's coming to me. They would probably, first off, laugh at me, or second, they would probably say something like, okay, Matt, here's your share of the inheritance. It's wisdom. Go get a job. <laughs> like, Here's, here's, here's your inheritance. Here's, here, let me just drop some wisdom into your life. Go find yourself a job and make your own money. Stay in school. Go to school. Like, get a job. But this younger son, he goes to his dad, says, Dad, I wish you were dead, so instead of hiring a hitman to kill you so that I can get my inheritance, it'd be a lot easier for me if you just gave it to me, right? And the dad says, okay, here you go. So this younger son, he takes his inheritance and he leaves. And again, we need to understand that this wasn't a small amount of money. Like, this was a third of his family's life savings that he's taken. So he takes it and he leaves. Basically, let me translate this for you. Basically, what we have is this younger son who gets his money. He buys a one-way ticket to, like, Las Vegas or, you know, Reno or, you know, Atlantic City, somewhere crazy like that. Takes everything he has, buys a one-way ticket, goes and just goes nuts, right? Like, goes out and just starts partying like a rock star, right? Like, party like a rock party like, yeah, Diego feels me, he's got it, you know, like, just goes out and goes crazy, right? Like, takes his money and just goes, and I can imagine somebody nuts, like Charlie Sheen, anybody know who that is? Like, I can imagine somebody like Charlie Sheen calling him up and being like, dude, like, slow down a little bit, man, like, I like to have a good time, too. I like to party, too, but you're going a little nuts. Like, slow down. And, and we see that he gets to this point to where he runs out of money, right? And I don't know about you, but I can relate with this a little bit because the facts are when you run out of money, 
And when the money runs out, the friends run out. And when the friends run out, the fun runs out. And all of a sudden, Jesus is painting this picture of a younger son who finds himself doing arguably one of the most degrading jobs that a young Jewish boy can have, and that is taking care of the pigs. And gets to this point to where he's not just taking care of the pigs, but he's actually envious of the pigs, jealous of the pigs, like jealous of what they're eating. So quickly, Jesus is painting this picture of the son who's going from the penthouse of the MGM Graham in Las Vegas to sleeping in the park bench with absolutely nothing, no money in his pocket, nowhere to live, sleeping in the gutter, face down, with absolutely nothing. And it all started with one decision that led to another decision, and another decision, and another decision. And before he knew it, his life took him to a place to where he literally found himself in the gutter. And I want to pause here for a moment, and I want to ask you a question. And I want you to ask yourselves a question. Where are the decisions that you are making in life taking you? The decisions that you are making in your life, the choices that you are making in your life, what path is that taking you down in life? So many times in life, I feel like we can adopt this, this attitude or this mindset of, you know, well, I'll work on my problems later, right? Like, anybody ever said that to themselves? I've said that to myself for years. You know, I'll work on my problems later. Or, you know, well, everyone else is doing this, so, you know, I'll, I'll figure it out one day. I'll, I'll get through it or... You know, everyone else is doing this, so it's probably not that bad, or, you know, what I'm doing isn't as bad as what, you know, Jerry's doing, so I guess I'm doing all right. Like, you know, we, we play this game where we compare ourselves, or we, we belittle what's going on, and before we know it, this type of thinking and this, this, this mindset can lead us down a road to where we literally are going to end up like this younger son, somewhere where we had no intentions of ending up, and somewhere where we quite frankly, don't want to be. And I know that firsthand because I did that. I was the younger son. And it all started for me thinking that I knew better than everyone else around me. Thinking that no one else around me, nobody else in the world, knew what I was going through. It started with me thinking that nobody else knew the pain that I was being faced with in life, the heartache that I was being faced with. They didn't understand. They didn't know what I was going through. So how could they possibly tell me the way that I was responding to those situations was wrong? They were nuts. They were stupid. And that was the stupidest attitude that I could have ever had. I had so many people in my life that were trying to pour into me and that truly wanted to help me and speak life and truth into my life. And I ignored them because I thought, you know what? They have no clue what they're talking about. There were people in my life that were warning me, that were telling me, dude, you need to slow down. You need to get help. You need to stop. Like, you need to get help with this issue. Like, for me, it was drugs, as I've shared in here many times. Like, 
you need to get help. Things are going to get a lot worse before they get a lot better if you keep going down this road. Things are going to get way out of hand. And how did I respond when I thought to myself, what do they know? They don't know what I'm going through. They don't know, they don't know what I'm feeling. But something happened, and I had to learn the hard way that most of those people were right. But it took me to a point to where I got arrested. I went to a drug treatment, which was the closest to hell that I've ever come, uh, to coming home, relapsing, to overdosing, to losing my job, to losing my home, to losing my car, to losing e literally every single thing that I had. And it all started way back when I was young and making one decision, letting one person influence me and say, well, they're doing it, so it's okay. I'll just try it. One decision, and that decision led to another decision, and then another, and another, and another, and, and the lie that I kept telling myself, oh, I'll fix this problem tomorrow, I'll stop tomorrow, or I'll, I'll do better when I grow up, and, and I'll deal with this issue tomorrow. Well, for me, tomorrow never came. Let me ask you something. Do you think that this younger son in this story just suddenly woke up one day and said to himself, you know what, I'm going to go to my dad today and I'm going to ask for my inheritance and I'm just going to leave and I'm going to go do all this crazy stuff. Like we don't get to see in this passage what happened before and what he was dealing with before, but I am willing to bet that this was not the first decision that he made that there were months, maybe even years, leading up to this situation that he, found, that he finds himself in of terrible choices that he was making in life that led him to one day thinking, you know what, I'm doing all of these things and probably getting in trouble at home, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to my dad and just tell him to give me my share of the inheritance so that I can leave and just go do it anyways and not have to answer to him. Like, there was probably a lot of events and a lot of sin that led up to where he finds himself here. As I said, we don't get to see the details of it, but, but we, we catch up when he approaches his father demanding his inheritance, and I'm willing to bet that his sin started a long time before then. The son gets to this point to where he the scripture says that he comes to his senses and he makes his plan to return home. But I think the question that we need to ask ourselves, and I think the question that we, at least for me as I was reading this, that, that I, I, I was kind of finding myself asking myself was, what really was the younger son's problem? Like, what was he doing? And, and I think what he was after, and I think it's the same thing that many of us are after, if we're honest with ourselves in life, is, is we think that happiness and fulfillment in life can be found in answering to nobody and doing whatever it is that we want to do whenever we want to do it and answering to nobody and that true happiness and fulfillment can, in life can be found in that and that doing whatever he wants just like the son doing whatever he wants whenever he wants that will lead to ultimate happiness and fulfillment and if we're honest that's pretty much the way that the rest of our world works today isn't it like, don't let anybody tell you that's wrong for you. Don't let anybody say that that's wrong or this is wrong or how you're acting is wrong or what you're doing is wrong. They don't know you. They don't know what you're going through. And as I was saying, so many times in my life, we, we think we know what's best and true happiness can be found in this world, in a substance, in, in a person, in a relationship, in an activity, in 
yoga and shopping and, and whatever it is, whatever it is for you. You know, if I can just have this object, then I'll be happy. If I can just, you know, get this person to fall in love with me, then, then I'll really be happy. Like, if I can just fix this relationship, then I'll really, really, really be happy. If I can just get a better job, if I can just make more money, a nicer car, a nicer house, then I'll be happy. If I can make this person who's hurt me feel as bad as they've made me feel, then I'll feel a little bit better. And let me tell you that this world has absolutely nothing to offer you. True happiness and fulfillment in life cannot be found in this world. Trust me. I've done it all. I've tried it all. I've experienced a lot of bad things. And, and I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying here because there are some amazing things in this world, right? Like, I love my wife and my kids and very much, and they make me very happy and, you know, other things too, like the Dallas Cowboys, they're awesome. Like that, that brings me happiness and fulfillment in life. But true happiness and purpose and fulfillment in life can only be found in Christ. You can go your whole entire life searching for happiness in a person, in a thing, in anything else that this world has to offer. And I promise you, it might make you happy for a while because there were many things that made me happy for a while. But eventually, it's not going to. So what is the younger son's game plan? Well, he rebels. He rebels against his father. He rebels against his family. The younger son was a rebellious son. And I'd encourage you to ask yourself tonight, and you'll see the question on your outline. I filled it all in for you. Um, the first question is that I want you to ask yourself is, am I the rebellious son? And, and if so... If that's the character in the story that you're relating with, if so, then I want you to ask yourselves another question. Where is your rebellion taking you? Where is your sin taking you? What path in life are the decisions that you're making taking you? Because it's going to take you somewhere, and you may be thinking, well, you know what, I, I might mess up a little, or I do these small things that I, sh I know I shouldn't do, but it's not that big of a deal. Let me tell you something. The worst thing that we can do in life is minimize the mistakes or the sins that we struggle with. Because in doing that, what we're actually doing is what I said before, we are desensitizing ourselves to sin. So when that little sin, okay, you know, it's not that big of a deal, then we move on to the next thing, and the next thing, and the next thing. And if we don't confront the real issues, no matter how small they may seem, it will only get worse. Because what we do is we're desensitizing ourselves to sin. And it starts with that little, little sin. Sin, struggles in life, it's like a drug. Like, when I started using drugs, let me just tell you, I didn't wake up one day and think to myself, you know what I'm going to do today? I think I'm going to smoke meth. Like, that sounds fun. Like, that, that, I think I'm going to start there and then work my way down to, like, the smaller stuff, right? Like, that's not how it works. Like, I was introduced to something small and thought, well, I know I shouldn't be doing this. I know I shouldn't let this person influence me in this way. I know I shouldn't try this, but 
what the heck, I'll, ju I'll just give it a shot. And that's exactly how sin is. We start by justifying the small thing and starting there, and then we work our way up because that's not fulfilling us enough. And we go to the next thing, and the next thing, and the next thing, and the next thing. And before we know it, we have allowed sin to creep into our lives, take a hold of us, and we get to this point in life to where we look up and we say, how did I get here? What am I doing? So I ask you again, where is your rebellion taking you? Because I know from personal experience that it's not going to be a place that you want to be. So this younger son, he gets to this point where the scriptures say that he comes to his senses and he makes his plan to return home, right? So he heads home, he gets his stuff, he heads home, and, and the scripture goes on to tell us that while he was still a long way off, while he was still a long way off, the father sees him off in the distance walking home and runs out to meet him. Now, I want you to use your imagination with me for a moment, okay? I want you to imagine that you're this younger, rebellious son. And I know for many of you that's not going to be hard to do because we have so many jacked up people in the room, myself included. Just kidding. That was a joke. But okay. uh -huh. So imagine that you're this younger son. You've gone out and you've made all these mistakes. You've done all these terrible things. You've, you've spent a third of your family's life savings on just wild living, what the scripture called wild living. You've hit your rock bottom. You decide to go home. You have no car. There are no planes during this time. So you can't hop on a plane and get a plane ticket. There are no phones, so you can't call your daddy and say, hey, dad, can you buy me a ticket? I messed up and I need a ride home. No, he's walking home. So imagine you're walking home thinking about all the mistakes that you've made, right? Like thinking about all the decisions that you made, where you're at, nothing, no money in your pocket, no food in your belly. You're walking home, being flooded with all the shame and regret, wondering how your family and your father is going to receive you when you get home. And you're just working on this perfect speech, right? Like, okay, if I can just get home and if I can just spill out this perfect speech and apology and if I can just show them like how how sorry I really am for what I've done if I can just show them like how bad I truly feel then maybe they'll go easy on me and all of that fear creeping in wondering man like how am I going to be received when I get home or imagine with me for a second that you're the father right like and you see your son coming home you see him walking home in the distance knowing that you gave him your a portion of your life savings and he went out and just squandered it on all this terrible terrible stuff and you see him walking home like would you not be gearing up for like the biggest i told you so ever right like i have two sons and for a while my our oldest son would climb on stuff and you know we did the, the the good parent thing where you walk over and you take him down and don't get on there mavericks you're gonna fall and hurt yourself but you know as he's gotten older we've kind of adopted this new mentality where we just kind of let him fall and you know uh he just learns this lesson, right? Like, and then he looks up at us, and we're just like, well, you know, we've told you for two years now not to crawl on that, and you just don't listen. That's kind of backfired a little bit, too, because he's kind of a tank, so he falls and just gets up and laughs, so that hasn't really worked any either, but, you know, imagine you're this father, and you see him coming home, like, what do you not be just gearing up for the biggest I told you so ever? Or he comes up, and you're just like, oh, hey, son, nice to see you. Thanks for blowing my money. Um, go ahead and go to the bedroom, grab the belt, the big one, and meet me in the bedroom. You know, but this father, he sees his son off in the distance, and the father starts running towards his son. It says the father run towards his son. Now, if I'm the younger son in this story, that's not a good thing. 
right? Like, if I have done this, and I'm looking in the distance, like, thinking, okay, man, like, what am I going to say when I get there? And I stop, and I see my dad running towards me. I'm turning around, and I'm running in the opposite direction, right? Because if I keep going towards him, I'm getting ready for, like, a clothesline or something, like, a beatdown of some kind, right? Like, that's not a good, it's not a good thing, and, and I'm preparing myself for this epic beatdown. You know, you're bracing for impact, but the story that Jesus is telling is this father and this son who, who's getting ready for impact, but he isn't met that way. Like, it's an embrace. It's a hug, and he, and he tries to just squeeze out this perfect apology that he had been rehearsing on his way home, and it just doesn't matter. His father is yelling over his shoulder to the servants, go get my son's robe, go get my son's sandals, go get my son's ring, Let's prepare the feast. Call all the family and the friends like he is home. It is time to celebrate. Like what the younger son receives and gets is grace. Grace that he does not deserve. But the father in the story that Jesus is telling won't have it any other way. And that was absolutely revolutionary to anyone during Jesus's original audience during this time. And quite frankly, I think it is quite difficult for many of us, even in today's society, to come to terms with that Jesus, that Christ, God loves you just the way you are. No matter how many mistakes you've made in life, no matter what you've done, no matter how many people you have hurt, no matter how jacked up you think you are, no matter how bad you think you've screwed up, God loves you just the way you are. He doesn't meet you with condemnation. He doesn't meet you where you are in life with shame and, and I told you so and I told you not to do that. He meets you with grace. No matter how badly, no matter how far you think you've walked away, and it's not about coming back to God to work and to earn his approval, but it's about simply coming to God and saying, God, I, I screwed up. Help me. Fix me. But God also loves you too much to leave you where you are and as you are. It's called grace, and it will absolutely change everything about your life, and I know that because it changed everything about my life. But not everyone likes grace. I know what you're thinking. What are you talking about? How does, not, how does everybody not like grace? That's awesome. Like, that's the best thing in the world. Yeah, I agree with you. But let's move to the end of our story. As we close in, let's look at Act 2, and we'll see in verse 25, we come across this character of the older son. And what is the older son doing? Well, the older son is doing what he's supposed to be doing, right? Like, He's out in the field working hard for his dad. He's doing anything and everything that his father asks of him. He's following the rules. He's doing what he's asked. He's not breaking any of the rules. He's not wasting his father's money on wild living as the younger son was doing. He's being the good, respectable, and faithful son. He's out there working, and he hears all of this commotion coming from the house, right? Like he hears music and, and a bunch of people at the house. So he walks up, and he gets a little closer to try to see what's going on, and and the servant comes out, and he tells him, you know, your brother's home, dude. Like, come on in. Like, it's, it's awesome. And, and what happens, right? Like, 
this older older brother, older son, he runs in and he's so excited to see his younger brother. He's like, dude, you're home. Like, man, you were making all these mistakes. I'm so glad to see you, right? Like, not so much. What does it say? It says that the older son gets mad. Like, he gets angry. Like, not necessarily because his brother is home, but because his dad has the audacity to throw him a party. Like, did he miss something? This younger brother just went out and blew this life savings on crazy living, and the dad is throwing him a party, right? Like, and the, the older son says to his dad, he says, look. Now, I want to pause here again, because had this been me, like, I used to do that with my siblings, like, if they screwed up and, and, and didn't get caught, you know, you do the thing where you, you tell your parents how bad of a parent they are because they're not disciplining the child like they should be, right? Like, we think we know everything, and let me just pause here for a moment, because I can imagine being this older, older son and coming to the house and seeing my parents throwing a party for my terrible, terrible sibling, and saying, look, now, that would have been the only word that came out, right? Like, if, if, my, if my mom came out and was like, hey, what are you doing, you know, how are you, what's going on? And I'm like, you're throwing them a party? And, and look, like, that would have been the only word that came out. Like, she would have smacked me, like, right, right upside the head, like, hard. I saw her do it to my other siblings many times, so that was, that was fun to see, but, right? Like, never to me, no. I was a good, I was a good kid. I was a good kid, yeah, but he says, look, everything that I have done for you, look at how hard I've worked for you, and my younger brother goes out and wastes your life's earnings on wild living, and I've remained faithful. I've stayed here. I've been doing what I'm supposed to be doing, and I'm reading this in the scripture. I'm reading this, this, this story of the older, older brother, and I'm thinking to myself, like, he makes some good points. Like, he has a good argument, but what Jesus is going to say about this older brother is just as revolutionary as what he says about the younger brother. You see, the younger brother was the rebellious son, but number two on your outline, the older brother was the religious son. And when I say religious, I mean that in the most negative context that Jesus would have used it in. What he's doing is he's going on and he's listing all of these things, all the things that he has done right, how he's been obedient to his father, all the ways the younger brother hadn't and had failed. He feels entitled to a blessing from his father because of what he had done for him. Here's another way of looking at this or saying this. Here, father, this is a list of all the things that I've done for you. Now here is a list of all the things that you now owe me. You see, the way that religion works, the way that it works is if I do A, B, and C for God, if I do this, this, and this for God, then God owes me this, this, and this. If I do this, this, and this for God, then God has to fix this, this, and this in my life. And let me ask you something. In that scenario, in that mindset, who is in whose debt? Like the older, older son was putting his father in his debt, religion seeks to put God in our debt. God, look at how I've lived. I come to church. I come to Bible study. I, I tithe. I, I serve in ministry. I serve in this area or that area. Look at all these things that I am doing for you. When are you going to do something for me? 
Now, for those of you that didn't relate with the younger son, I'm thinking some of you are probably relating with the older son. And I know that because I, at times, also relate with the older son. So many times in life, I feel like we can go through and we can do the good Christian things, right? Like we can, we can come to church and do all these things simply because we think that in doing those things, God will have to, by default, make our lives better. He will have to bless us with a better job, better friends. He will have to remove the struggles that we struggle with in life. Bad things won't have to happen to us as often because we're serving God. And I know that, and, and I know that many of you have thought that before because I've thought that before. But the fact is, I don't find that in my Bible. I don't find where it says, if you come to church and if you give your life to Christ and if you serve God, then God is going to remove every struggle, every hardship in life. You're never going to go through a problem again in life. It is going to be easy. Like, I don't see that. I can remember a time in my life where I had this moment with God, right? And I was feeling very reflective and I, and I started this conversation with God and I was sitting there and I was thinking, and I don't remember word for word what I, what, I, what I said to God, but it went something like this. You know, I sat there and I thought, you know what, God? I've been through a lot. I've been through a drug addiction. I was born with a muscle disease that I didn't ask for that has caused me to not be able to do the things that I want to do. Um, I, my parents split up when I was younger. My stepmother abused me and my siblings pretty severely. Um, I moved to Texas to live with my aunt and uncle just to watch my uncle die from cancer. Uh, let's see, my stepfather, the man who raised me, he was killed on his motorcycle on his way home from work. Uh, my mother has gone through crazy, scary medical issues where we didn't think that she was going to make it through. My wife, my beautiful wife up here, when she gave birth to our first son, they didn't think that she was going to make it off of the table. They thought that she was going to die. They came out there and they didn't know if they could stop the bleeding that was going on internally, they didn't think she was going to make it. Things didn't go much easier the second time. So I remember having this conversation with God and listing all of these terrible events that had taken place, and I can remember listing them and, and saying to God, like, you know, I've gone to church my whole life. Yeah, I've messed up. Yeah, I've made some mistakes. But, you know, look at all these things that are going on in my life. And and, and, and I've tried, like, I, I've tried. I know I'm not perfect. I know I, I've made some mistakes, but I don't deserve this. I don't deserve all of these, these bad things that are happening. And look at all these other people who seem to have no problems in life. Like, everything in their life seems to be going good. They don't have any issues. They, ha they seem to have the perfect families, the perfect jobs. They never make any mis mistakes. None that have any severe consequences like I've faced in life, surely. And they don't even actively serve you. They don't even go to church. Yeah, they claim to be Christians. 95% of the people in the U.S. claim to be Christians, but they don't actually do anything about it. And their lives are better than mine? Like, what's up? How is that fair? Why would you bless them and not me? Why have all these things happened in my life? What did I do? And I can remember having this almost angry moment with God and being angry at God. Like, why? And I can remember almost hearing the voice of God audibly. I didn't hear it audibly, but it was, it was close to that. And I can almost remember hearing God say to me, Matthew, 
if I choose to bless every single person on the face of the earth except you, will you still follow me? If your entire life goes by and seems to just seem like one giant shipwreck after another, one giant trial from start to finish, and if it looks like I'm blessing and giving everybody else more than you, will you still love me? Will you still serve me? And as I sat there, I was like, yeah. You see, serving God and building our relationship with God isn't so that he can bless us and, and make our lives perfect. Because the fact of the matter is he has already given us more than we deserve. Through his son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for you and for me, to bridge the gap so that we could have a relationship with him. That is more than we deserve. So how do we get off in life thinking and questioning and being angry at God, saying, God, how dare you bless this person more than me? How dare I have a struggle? Why would you let this happen to me? Paul makes a statement in the New Testament where he says, we as Christians are called to pick up our cross and carry it daily. Now, I know many Christians around the world and, and many of us even in the room, we wear these pretty little necklaces with a cross on it and they're nice little, you know, pretty little things for, pe for people to see, right? But the cross wasn't so pretty. Like, I know we glamorize it in today's culture and we think that it's this, this beautiful thing and it is a beautiful thing, but the cross is a, is a symbol of torture. Do we understand that? The gift that we have been given is far more than we could ever, ever receive. That we could ever deserve. That we could ever earn. So we come to church and we do all these things and we get involved and we serve in ministry and, and we turn our lives over to God and we, everything's going good, right? And we, we think to ourselves... I'm not keeping a checklist. I, I'm not trying to keep a tally on what God's going to give me, but let me ask you something. What happens when you lose your job? What happens when you find out that your significant other has been unfaithful? What happens when somebody in your family dies tragically? What happens when you get a call from the doctor and it's not the news that you want? What happens when something terrible happens in life and we find ourselves saying or thinking things god how could you let this happen why would you do this to me look at all i've done for you if you've ever found yourself thinking that or saying that then i will say 100 percent you are the older son in this story i'm going to ask for everyone to just kind of close your eyes and, and bow your heads as i close Throughout tonight's message, we've been asking ourselves, who am I in the story? 
And I want to give you some time to respond. And, and with every, every head bowed and every eyes closed, I want to take a moment and I want to ask that you would look inward. And maybe you're sitting here tonight and, and you've realized that, that you are the younger son. Maybe you realize that you have walked so far away from God that you've started with that little, little sin and that turned into something bigger and bigger and bigger. And maybe you're sitting here tonight and you're thinking to yourself, how did I get here? I want to tell you that tonight can be the start to a new life for you that you can turn around grab your stuff and come home and God is going to turn and run towards you and wrap you up in an embrace I don't care how badly you think you've messed up or how far you think you've walked away from God. God loves you and wants a relationship with you. Maybe you're sitting here tonight and you've been going through the motions. You've been coming to church and keeping this checklist of all the things that you've been doing for God without receiving any blessings or feeling like anything in life is getting better. Like I come to church, I come to Bible study, I serve, and, and nothing's changing in my life. And you found yourself asking God, why does it seem like you're blessing everyone else around me? I want to ask you something. If, if the rest of your life seems like one giant trial, will you still serve God? Because as I've already said tonight, He has offered you more than you will ever deserve. 